0: Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. If The Way Church vanished tomorrow, would anybody in our community notice? This question was the last question that our small groups discussed this past week as we got into this sermon series called A God-Lived Life and looked at our lives, specifically our lives as Christians, and asked, are we as hospitable as we think we are? Are we like Christ in his love of strangers? Are we hospitable towards strangers? Are we moved by the love of Christ who opened up his arms for sinners, who literally opened up his heart for sinners? That's what the point of this question was. It was to get us to think about that. But here's another question. If you vanished tomorrow, would anybody in our community notice? That's the question that our sermon lesson not only suggests, but answers. You heard it just a moment ago. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24. All people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Humanity all shares the same problem. We are frail. God's word compares us, our lives to that of grass, which grows up flowers that blossom and fall. We're here today and we're gone tomorrow. This is true for everybody. This is true and no one is excluded. Rich or poor, celebrities or nobody, the righteous or the unrighteous, everybody suffers this end. And so to the point of the question, if you were to just vanish tomorrow, which really isn't a question of if you will, but when you will, will anybody notice? There's really a couple different ways you could look at the second part of that question. You could look at it from the perspective of what our culture does in response to this question what do we do with our lives? What would happen if we were just gone? Would people notice? Well, not only do people not notice, we work really, really hard not to notice and ignore it. I mean, think about it. People will do anything to go after just a little bit more time on this earth. Think about all of of the ways that you are sold youth and beauty and strength. And we don't want to have anything to do with the opposites of those things. The other way you could think about this question is maybe asking you how or when you have contemplated this in your own life. The matter of your mortality. And you start thinking about that and the truth kind of hits you that we don't really think about that. Because we don't really want to. And so what do we do? We go about this hurried life where the status quo is that we are always on the go, going from one thing to the next, not to pause and think about tomorrow or even eternity. All people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. And why? Why is this that... This is a shared problem. Well, we know from scripture, Romans tells us that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. The one man who brought about sin and therefore death, Paul in Romans is talking about Adam, the person to whom sinned first and to whom God spoke and said, for dust you are and to dust you'll return. That's what eventually happened to Adam. And because of sin, because of the wages of our sin, so what's going to happen to you and to me? So the question of whether or not people would notice is is not really the point of this question. The question does have a point, however, and it's not merely for us to come to grips with our mortality. It is to grasp the inevitability of our end, so that all the other moments of our lives are infused with vitality. What First Peter is doing is getting us to come face to face with our deaths so that we face all of our lives, every last moment of our lives with more freedom and more fullness in God and in living out of his grace. That's essentially what we're talking about with this series and its name, A God-Lived Life, how we are taking the gift that God has given us of eternal life, of his grace, and thinking about what we do with our moments and our days. Today, our focus is on a life of discipleship. And so, I want to point out to you kind of maybe a, a double meaning to this, to this series' name. It's a God lived life. It's not only the life that we strive to live, but it's the idea that there is just one person who did, in fact, live a godly life it's God Himself. It's Jesus who came and redeemed every moment of our lives for us. And because of that, Jesus doesn't merely set an example for how you are to live a God-lived life. He doesn't merely inspire you to go and give a try at a God-lived life. No, what he actually does is he gives you a new life. He gives you new birth into a brand new life. You read it. We read this, that all people are like grass and all their glory is like flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But that's not true for you. That's not your end. That's not the end of your story. Just the verse prior. Why? Why? Well, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. If you catch just one thing to start out this morning, it's this, you have been reborn. You have been made new and you have been so how? through the living and the enduring word of God. That's how you've been given new life. That's how you've been reborn so that you will not die, but you will live. You will not become something that perishes, but you will live imperishly in heaven forever. Yes, First Peter makes us wrestle with what really is a depressing truth. There's a thing called sin, and because it's alive and well in this world and in our bodies, we will die. And yet, it forces us to wrestle with that, so we see that that's not the end of the story for us. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Yes, we have a problem and the problem is called sin and it has a resulting symptom called death. But even before that problem was in existence, your God had a solution to that problem. Before the creation of the world, he chose his son Jesus to come from heaven to earth to spill his blood. To spill his blood and let it cover over you and redeem you, buy you back from an empty way of life, from a hurried, always on the go, purposeless living. And give you something greater, a new hope and faith in God, glory in God that is not a perishable thing, but is imperishable, born through the imperishable word of God. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. All people are like grass, all their glory is like the flowers of the field, grass withers, flowers fall, but... The word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Let me summarize. You know there's a problem called sin. You know it's gonna equal your death. You know that there is life in Christ. Number four, that life in Christ, that new birth, that new life is given to you through the living and enduring word of God. And my friends, this is what I'm preaching to you. This is the word that was preached to you. Amen? We could say amen there. We could just be done there. But you know where you are. You know you're not in heaven yet. And that means that this side of heaven, you could probably think of it in this way, that. Well, you're behind enemy lines. There are enemies that are, are looking to get you to do something very foolish. The enemies are the devil, sin that exists in the world, sin that exists inside of you. And before I tell you the thing that, that you know that those enemies are, are trying to get you to do that foolish thing, let me give you a parallel, Okay. Imagine this. You have a friend or a loved one, maybe a spouse or a child, someone you love very dearly who's sick. They're sick and there seems to be no cure. You watch as they suffer pain and there's nothing you can do about it. It seems inevitable that that this will take them this will take their life, take them home to heaven, and then it happens. Doctors find a cure. They diagnose the disease, and they understand that, that to fix this, there's actually a cure in place, and it's rather simple. All your loved one has to do is, is take a pill. One pill every day for the rest of their life, and they'll have a normal life. They'll live with a normal life expectancy and all of the strength and the vigor and the health of, of any healthy person. They'll have that. So you imagine what would happen when your loved one takes that pill. Day after day, they get stronger and healthier and they're able to live that way with you. And then what would happen if they just stopped? After a while, they got so strong, they got so healthy, they they didn't really think they needed it anymore. And you had to watch and revisit everything that you despised so much. Slowly, over time, you see the disease that once had a grip on them wrap itself around them again. You see this strong and healthy person grow weaker, and start to suffer before they die. The question that you would have to ask is, is, how foolish could you be? Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you take care of yourself? Why wouldn't you do the one very simple thing that you know will give you life? We see that happen spiritually. We have been born again. We have been given new life in Christ, born through something that is not. Perishable through the living and enduring word of God, you have been given new hope. You have been given glory in Christ that is yours now, but will be realized full in heaven. You have been redeemed. You have been bought back from an empty way of life, held captive by sin and been set free to live a full and free life with no guilt and no shame because you are baptized and you stand in Christ Jesus. What gave you all of that, that faith, is the living and enduring word of God. It endures forever. Take it and you're going to have life in his name. So imagine a loved one who comes to know all of that in Christ. Then after a while, just stops. They think they're plenty strong on their own. They think they don't need it anymore. And you're forced to just watch as all that that used to have a grip on them slowly over time, not overnight, but over a season of maybe months Maybe years takes over, and the faith dies. I mean we saw an example of that happen. We read about it in second chronicles chapter thirty four That happened to the people of Israel. Did you know just two generations before Josiah? he was the descendant of one of the greatest kings that had reigned in Israel. His grandfather was Hezekiah, a godly man who made sure that God's laws, God's word was freely preached and proclaimed throughout Israel. But just two generations, about 50 years removed, what happened? They didn't even recognize the book they found in God's house. They brushed off this dusty old book, read it, and realized that they had not been living according to the given words of God, and God was angry at them for it. How does that happen? Well, we see an example of that taking place even more recent than the Old Testament. Between the time of Christ's ascension and about 1,500 years later, what would had happened in Christianity is this. People stopped looking at the living and enduring word of God as the source of their forgiveness, the source of their hope, the source of their salvation. And instead, what happened over a quite lengthy period of time, not overnight, is that people instead looked to traditions that were man-made. They looked to men who were wise, but not God, and what they had to say about, well, spiritual things. They started looking not to the laws and the decrees of what God's word had to say, but to the laws and the decrees of what popes and religious leaders had to say. And you couple that you couple that really blatantly unbiblical way of living out a God-lived life with the fact that this is the Middle Ages. And so the literacy rate, it was less than 10%. And you know what was happening? Well, God's people weren't connecting to God's word, the living and enduring word that was preached to them, which gave them new life, hope, and salvation in Christ. People got duped. What was going on around the year 1500 was that people were being fed a lie, that they could buy pieces of paper called indulgences. And by purchasing those, they could have salvation. They could have heaven. So it changed all that. Some unknown dude from some really obscure town read his bible he read his bible and what that man Martin Luther did was end up posting 95 theses or or 95 different different discussion points about what he had read in God's word and, and he hoped to just have a discussion about an open debate about with The church of his day. I won't read those 95 theses, but I'll summarize the two takeaways. The first was this that God's word, God's word is the thing that determines truth and reality. It is not your logic or your reason. It is not religious leaders or the church. It isn't history or tradition, but it's God. God and what he speaks is what is true. And the second thing flows from that. That salvation doesn't come from you or what you do. Salvation comes from the Lord. And salvation comes to those who have faith and faith comes from the word of God. Don't believe me? Listen to the word of God. Romans ten seventeen says, so then faith comes from hearing the message, and the message comes from the word of Christ. Maybe in another sermon some other day, we'll talk about the biblical literacy rate in our culture we could. We could talk on and on about how the biblical literacy rate has sharply declined, well, really, in the past two centuries. Excuse me, past two generations. We could talk about how that has been paired with the fact that worship attendance and engagement in Christianity has also declined. We could talk about how millennials especially, and Gen Z also, claims to be very... very spiritual, but not religious, and yet they haven't read spiritual literature like the Bible, but this isn't a sermon about our culture. It's also not a sermon about 1500 medieval time Germany. It's not a sermon about Old Testament Israel. It's a sermon about what's happening in your heart and in your home. I said that the very first thing that I want you to take home, and this really is it, if there's one thing you take home today, it's that the living and enduring word of God is the thing that creates faith in your heart. Closely followed, here's the second thing. And it's scary. It's rather creepy. That there really are enemies that are looking to separate you from the source of life and salvation. The devil, the sin that's in the world and the sin that's in our flesh, wants to do nothing more and is working very hard to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And we know Romans tells us that there is nothing in all creation that can separate you from that. And so they don't just go to your faith and try to snatch it out of your hand. It doesn't work that way. The devil knows he can't do that. Instead, what he tries to do is slowly, over time, trick you into simply walking away, unplugging, from the living and enduring word of God that has brought you new life, that has given you new birth and starve you out. And you see it, I see it, this spiritual malnourishment taking place in our own faith family. The devil, the world, our sinful flesh, it it might use bad times. It might use the loss of something, maybe the loss of your health or your mental health, the loss of an opportunity or a job, the loss of a loved one or a loss of a relationship. And you don't go to God's word for comfort. You don't go to a Christian friend or your pastor to talk about these matters. Like a turtle, you just retreat into your shell. And when that happens, the devil wins. It's exactly what he wants you to do. I could tell you story upon story of of seeing this happen in the last year and some months. Throughout the time of the pandemic, you see this happening. It hasn't been very pleasant, has it? And so what has happened is what just started out as maybe social isolation. Well, it leads to emotional and relational isolation that leads to a spiritual isolation. And the people that God has given his living and enduring word to stop sharing it with each other. But it's not bad times. That's not the main weapon that, the devil, the world, and your sinful flesh use to separate you from God's word. Now, oftentimes, that drives us closer to Christ, and and the devil knows it. So instead, he uses really good things or seemingly good things He uses the fact that that you got a promotion, that you got a raise, that you're working more hours, or maybe now that you've gotten to retire. He uses the fact that your schedule is, is back to being filled up. You have so many social engagements and all of these fun things that your family and your kids can do. And now all these seemingly good things, well, we don't really have time for these things. For the word of God from which faith comes. And the devil knows it. The devil knows that if he can give you really, really good things, opportunities, family and friends, vacations, fun, hobbies, well, pretty soon, those things will shove God things to the margins. And you've seen it happen. Maybe in your life, maybe in the life of someone you love. It doesn't really matter, good things or bad things. The enemy's number one job is to think you take, to have you take whatever you think of God's word from the past, that it was good. Well, it just doesn't matter that much in the present. So how are we to think about God's word? Well, oftentimes, it, it's kind of Old Testament-esque, isn't it? It's, it's a book that sits on a shelf and collects dust. Or maybe, maybe it's an app. It's an app that you've downloaded, but it's not the one that is taking up the most screen time. Go check the results on your iPhone. How are we to think about it then? Well, First Peter gives us a really compelling picture. In chapter two, the apostle writes this, therefore rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it, you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. You can picture a baby, can't you? Perhaps there is no more beautiful picture of just peace and tranquility and just joy as they are with their mother or with a bottle and they just get to enjoy milk and they are happy. You can picture that, right? But you also can picture what happens when mom or that bottle gets taken away. Can't you? Red face, clenched fists. And all of a sudden, this very cute, precious baby lets out a warrior, warlike cry as it screams to get back that thing it craved so much. Because the baby knows. It's good stuff. But they also know, not only is this something they want, this is something they need. This is something they need to live and to thrive. How does God want you to look at his word? He wants you to look at it like a baby looks at milk, something they crave, something they don't just want, but they need to live. Imagine if God's people lived a God-lived life, not just God-looking life or a kind of good-looking enough light, but a God-lived life where they looked at God's word as something that they not only wanted, but they needed. I mean, why wouldn't you want to be with Christ who walks with you all the way, giving you everything you need? Why would you not want to be captivated by the cross, the cross that not only killed Christ, but also killed your old sinful self and from that gave you new life in that Christ who raised from the dead and whose spirit, who raised him from the dead, now lives in you also? Why would you not want to be obsessed with your savior Who pours out all that is His in you and sends you back out into this world to live with the peace of forgiveness. But it's not just about what we want, it's about what we need. Because this life, God's word mentions, it's not only short, it's also heavy, it's difficult. Peter mentioned it. He talked about malice and deceit, hypocrisy and envy, slander of every kind. You experience these things in your own way. Broken relationships and broken bridges, stress and pressure, envy for things that you don't have, deceit and lies for not being thankful for things we do have. Do you want to live opposite of those things. We need the word of God. We need the one thing and the one thing only that will let us live lives, not only knowing we're forgiven, but going and forgiving. Lives that are not only redeemed, but where we can redeem others by sharing with them the gospel message of Christ Jesus. There is one thing and one thing alone that gives you that new life. It's the living and enduring word of God. And God says, crave that, want that, need that, like a baby needs milk from its mother. So what's keeping you and I from that? I don't pretend to know what each of you has going on exactly in your life. What's keeping you from spending the optimal amount of time with God and his word? But I alluded to it before, and I think it's safe to venture maybe a general guess. We just don't prioritize it. That there are so many things that hurry us through life, that move us from one thing to the next, where it's just not a priority in our day. So we need a restart. We need a a refresh from that empty way of life. So, what would it take? I guess what I'm asking is, what would a Reformation in your life look like? Let me, let me tell you a story about this guy, the namesake of the Reformation. He was busy, and not by medieval standards. By modern standards, I'm willing to bet he was busier than you. This is a man who, throughout the Reformation, he preached on average every two and a half times, every two and a half days. And when he preached, he, he didn't just preach once like your pastor gets away with. No, he would preach multiple times throughout the day. And not only that, he would write hundreds of publications a year, not to mention the private correspondences that he was sending out, not to mention the fact that he, by himself, translated the Bible from German, or excuse me, from Latin into German. Oh, and on top of that, he was writing around just 40 hymns and songs. Oh, and by the way, he was also overseeing very aggressively the publication and the printing of all that with this new invention called the printing press. He did all of that. He did all that while he traveled extensively to to meet with religious and civic leaders during the reformation on top of that he was a professor at a college and his house was actually rather large he got to take over a huge house in the town in which he was a professor and which he lived and it was kind of like a boutique hotel where students and passersby throughout the town they would come and stay he and his wife ran that and speaking of his wife They had six kids, and Martin Luther was not an absentee father. He was very much a presence in the lives of his children. Knowing all of this, one day a friend asked him, how do you do it all? How do you plan about your day? He answered this. He said, I have so much to do that... I shall spend the first 3 hours in word and prayer. What does a God-lived life look like? I'm suggesting it it looks something like that. But really it looks exactly like this. It looks taking hold of the cross of Christ and where that is found in the living, enduring word of God and not letting go. Not letting go because Jesus Christ has made himself indispensable and life without him is really inconceivable. That's what a God-lived life looks like. What does a reformation in your heart, in your life look like? said it a bunch of times. A reformation is really nothing more than God's people returning back to their God. It is returning again and again and again to the gospel, which proclaims to you who you are and why you are here on this earth. It is returning again and again to the promises of God, all of which are yes, in Christ Jesus, and meet you exactly where you meet trials in your life. There he meets you with the humble means of his word and his sacrament, and he gives you hope in God. It is again and again a return to the comfort and the joy and the hope that you have in the full grace of God and you craving it like you are a starving baby who has just been giving its mother's milk and grabbing hold of more and more of that grace because guess what? It's all for you and it doesn't run out. What does a reformation look like in your heart and in your life? It is taking all that you have on your shoulders all of the stress, all of the worries, even the good things that you have, responsibilities, you'll call them. It is taking the full weight of your life and throwing it on Christ, throwing it again and again onto his grace and where that's found in his word and receiving rest in him. So, I don't know what's keeping you from that. Get rid of it. Get rid of whatever hatred, whatever malice is in your life. Get rid of, rid of whatever deceit, whatever lies you're telling yourself about how that's not something you can do or deserve to do or want to do. Get rid of all the hypocrisy. Get rid of your God-looking life and start living a God-lived life. Get rid of all envy and all slander, and like a newborn baby, crave pure and spiritual milk so that by it, you may grow, and grow and grow and grow in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Amen. (laughs)